Our reading today is from Acts 13, verses 1 to 12. Now, in the church of Ant at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manin, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So after they'd fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They travelled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. You will never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord. Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. The passage that Karen read for us from Acts 13 is a cracker. Two apostles travelling under the guidance of the Holy Spirit are summoned by the Roman ruler of the island of Cyprus who wants to hear the word of God. But a sorcerer seeks to confound the apostles and keep the proconsul from faith. One of the apostles stares the sorcerer down, calls him a child of the devil and pronounces blindness over him. And the Roman consul believes. There aren't many 12-verse passages in the Bible that are quite as dramatic and astonishing and, to be honest, quite as far from certainly my experience. I tried to think about any point in my life where I'd witnessed God doing anything quite so quick and fast and dramatic and I couldn't think of anything except for one occasion when I was sitting on a plane. I was waiting uh, in, a, in a very small plane on the airstrip for takeoff and um, I was reading a book. The book was called The Heavenly Man. You might have heard of it a fair while back now, at least 10 years. And um, it was written by Brother Yun or about Brother Yun and he was a Chinese man who had um, an extraordinary story to tell of lengthy imprisonment, dreadful treatment, and at one point, if I remember it correctly, the, uh, 
the story goes that he had been beaten terribly and his legs were broken and essentially he couldn't walk. And God spoke to him at some point and said, there'll come a day when you walk out of this prison and nobody will stop you. And that day arrived and at some point suddenly he felt uh, led of God and he stood up and he walked out of the prison on broken legs. And he walked past numerous guards, guards who appeared not to even see him. And he, uh, he walked through doors which were securely locked and he escaped and was never imprisoned again. My part in the story is utterly minor. What happened was I was sitting there reading this book waiting for the plane to take off and a, a Chinese man got on the plane and sat in the seat across and, you know, diagonally across the aisle. And he turned around with, with this memorable smile, I can see it still, and he said, I know that man, everything you're reading is true. And then he turned away, put his seatbelt on, and the plane took off. It was just a stunning moment having read this stuff and then had it personally confirmed like that. I mention that because even though we may not have seen something quite so spectacular in recent times, and perhaps you have, that's quite possible, perhaps you have witnessed an extraordinary and dramatic miracle. The thing is that God does do those things. This morning we're not going to delve into why that might or might not happen, why sometimes we see things and sometimes we don't, nor are we going to uh, explore the reasons that the Roman ruler Sergius Paulus was in this very strange codependent relationship with a false prophet, nor will we explore why Paul wanted to, uh, to break that relationship apart, nor will we talk about this odd parallel between the blindness that Elymas suffers when Paul uh, speaks that word of God and Paul's own experience of blindness, which is strangely similar. These are all interesting facts, but instead of that, we're going to think today about the, the, the picture of four people together, the proconsul, the sorcerer, and two apostles. And it's the two apostles in particular that draw my attention. Paul is the lead character. He is the, the only one that's recorded in the story as saying anything. It's quite possible that Barnabas, Barnabas had spoken. Paul is the one who takes this incredibly direct action and, and speaks with God's authority. He is dramatic. His words are black and white. It's all power and outcome. In my younger years, that would have appealed to me so much that I suspect I might not even have noticed that there's another person in the room, Barnabas. Both Paul and Barnabas are apostles in their own right. Both have seen many people come to faith in their lives already. They've established their ministries and they're both significant workers in God's economy. However, they are different. Paul is a very, very gifted, visibly active, strident person. His personality uh, comes out so often in his letters and in the stories that we have about him. And he is the, the second most um, present person in the New Testament after Jesus. Jesus is mentioned most. Paul is mentioned 
uh, more than anybody else in the New Testament. Barnabas, on the other hand, is what I'd have to call a hidden figure. He is uh, present through much of the New Testament and an important figure, but also a hidden one. Now, in the age of uh, fingertip research, you can find out some interesting things about names. And the name Barnabas, 2,000 years on from this story, is very unpopular. And the name Paul is very popular. That doesn't mean much, really, but it's interesting, I guess. My middle name's Maynard. Now, Maynard is it's an unusual name. Some of you are probably just giggling a little bit. That's what I find happens when I mention my middle name. But... For every Maynard in the world today, I've got it the wrong around, for every Barnabas in the world today, there are 24 Maynards. So that's reasonably popular. However, for every Barnabas in the world, there are 2,361 people called Paul. So Paul is really very much more popular than Barnabas. Now just for statistical interest, I thought we should add that uh, for every Barnabas in the world, there are 1,265 people called Matthew, and for every Barnabas in the world, there are a whopping 7,866 people called David, which makes the 24 Maynards much more interesting now, doesn't it? In our story, there's a curious circumstance. The three characters, the three main characters in the reading, all have names that have been changed. Saul, the apostle, becomes known by his Romanized name, Paul, from verse 9 in this story onwards. His name changes. Bar-Jesus is the name of the sorcerer. That's how he's first mentioned in the passage. But then he is referred to as Elimas, which uh, verse 8 tells us means sorcerer. Barnabas as well has a different name to the name that we first meet him with. If we read right back to Acts chapter 4, which we read, I don't know, a number of weeks ago as we're working our way through the book of Acts, we would have read this in Acts 4. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field that he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. It's the only time we hear his name Joseph mentioned and from then on he becomes Barnabas, this given name which contains his character. He's named after his character, which is encouragement. The story is quite poignant. It says that he sold a field and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. The, the poignancy comes from the very next verse, which we also read some weeks ago, in which Ananias and Sapphira do exactly the same thing. They sell property and they bring it to the apostles' feet. However... They lie and they, they hold some of the, the value back and that has, of course, tragic and also very black and white outcomes for both of them. It's interesting because it seems to, in a, in a sort of a picture of dissonance, establish Barnabas's character from the outset as a man of great integrity. Further on in Acts 11, there's an interesting uh, statement. It says that Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. It's a lovely little capturing of his, again, of his character and his, his um, 
quality, I guess, of, of person. And from Acts chapter 4 right through to 15, where Barnabas leaves the story, he's always there. He's, he's Paul's constant companion on missionary journeys. It's always Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas and Paul. He is um, a vital part of the early churches we'll, we'll read in, in a couple more minutes. But for all of that, Barnabas himself, as far as I can see, has no miracles recorded as his own. You can't find a spot where he performs a miracle. That's not to say that he doesn't do that, but you don't see it happening in the story. Similarly, Barnabas leaves us no writings, no letters, unlike Paul, who of course contributed so much to the Bible. And I can't think of any place in the, in the book of Acts or in the New Testament where a single word that Barnabas speaks is actually recorded for us. I might be wrong, but I, I've had a careful look and I couldn't find it. I'm going to call Barnabas again a hidden figure, and perhaps you'll see why. He's always there, but his, his input to the story is very, very different to Paul's. And in the, the, the brief 12 verses we read today, there's a great example of the difference in these two characters. And there's a point to all this, which I'm getting to right now. The fascinating, wonderful core of this story and the thing that I hope you'll, you'll carry with you is that if it were not for Barnabas, Paul himself would not have been in Cyprus at all. Let me read to you from Acts 9, verse 26. When Paul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. I should just stop briefly for a moment and just clarify this. This is just after that Damascus Road experience when, when Paul was, as I've already mentioned, similar to Elimas' experience in a way, Paul was struck blind and converted with great drama. Let me get back to the, what I was reading again. When Paul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him not believing that he really was a disciple. Paul had a, a reputation as a Pharisee that had uh, been responsible for the death of Christians. He was standing by at Stephen's stoning, of course. Although that's, that hasn't happened yet, sorry. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. While everybody is, all the Christians are frightened of this man Saul, who is a fearsome opponent of Christianity, has been so outspoken, understandably they're reluctant to believe that he's actually been saved. And they were afraid of him and they, they won't allow him to become part of their number. But Barnabas is different to the rest. He finds Paul. He leaves the, leaves the Christians, finds Paul, reaches out to him and convinces him to come with him and brings him in amongst the Christians. And that act, which is an act of encouragement, literally changes the history of our world. Without Barnabas... The story that we read this morning doesn't have the Apostle Paul on the island of Cyprus. Without Barnabas, Paul doesn't take the gospel eventually to Rome. Without Barnabas, we don't have any of Paul's letters, which make up 
so much of the New Testament. Barnabas is responsible for Paul having been brought into the company of Christians and to have found his calling as an apostle. It's an extraordinary thing. Stop for a moment to think about some of the facets that, of an encourager that Barnabas displays. Encouragers see something in another person that others can miss. A person who encourages doesn't dismiss and they don't follow popular opinion. An encourager is unafraid to reach out to people. We can see that Barnabas saw something in Paul and was unafraid to reach out, followed him to find out what he had seen and to bring that into life. It's a beautiful thing. A little further on, and we're coming now to the, uh, the story of Stephen, the Christians were scattered after Stephen's death. Some of them reached Antioch. You can read about this in Acts 11. And many people believed. And Barnabas was sent by the, uh, the Jerusalem church to Antioch. When he got there, he found that it was alive. It was popping. And many more people begun coming to Christ once Barnabas had arrived. He could have then stayed there. He could have been the apostle for that move of God. He was, in fact, the apostle sent by the church for that move of God. But he didn't. Characteristically, he goes for a second time looking for Paul. He leaves the action, goes away and finds Paul and brings him back. And at that point, the, uh, the term Christian is first applied to the believers. It's another example of Barnabas's ability to um, put somebody else's agenda before his own. As an encourager, he's more concerned with others than he is with himself. It's interesting to think about this. In, in the life of an encourager, there's no room for jealousy. Perhaps Barnabas knew that Paul's gift was greater and stronger and that once he arrived, he would become the, the driving force behind the growth of that church. But there was no jealousy in him. He went and found Paul and, and brought him to join in. Encouragement is the power behind ministry. In fact, it's the power behind anything. An encourager doesn't seek to be first. They seek to promote the progress of others. An encourager lays down their life and offers their strength to another. Barnabas is the encourager behind Paul's very visible world-changing ministry. And that's why I'm calling him today a hidden figure. There are so many of these hidden people in our world and there are correspondingly relatively few of the, the greatly gifted people that we find our attention drawn to and honestly can feel envious of and can, can, can wish that we were the person that had that gifting. Years, years and years ago I studied paleontology and uh, I was so impressed that I was studying paleontology because I think even the word just sounds impressive really, doesn't it? Paleontology. No, I thought I could have perhaps become a paleontologist. The world of, of the 18th century growth of science was dominated by the, the august, wealthy, often titled 
gentlemen of the Royal Society. These were the scientists who self-funded their lives of experiment and they were great men and they made many discoveries and this is where paleontology has its beginning. But it's fascinating to know that the study of fossils, paleontology, doesn't actually begin with these gentlemen in their stiff collars and their, their wigs and whatever else. It begins with a 12-year-old girl by the name of Mary Anning, a girl from a poor uh, fishing family on the coast of England. She is a fossil hunter. She looks for the little, you know, the little trilobites and things like that. And she's the person who finds the first complete dinosaur skeleton ever, this 12-year-old girl. She goes on to make a career as a paleontologist, although she never was given that title, being a girl and being uh, poor, all the things were against her really having any influence at all. Just one example of thousands, hundreds of thousands of examples I think we could find of unexpected people, simple people, little people, hidden people who actually have the most astonishing effect in our world. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor David was speaking uh, to us in his message about the effects of the pandemic on our life as a church. And David uh, happened to mention that we tend to, con to concentrate on the obvious gifted people in our midst, the ones who stand out. And David explained to us that in this year, uh, which has come as such a shock and has been so different to anything anybody expected, the role of the, the less visible, let me say the hidden people in our church, has suddenly become so important. Many of the, the more visible leaders have had to divest their tasks downwards and lots of other people have had to pick up and use their gifts in roles of pastoral care and all sorts of other endeavours. And this is a great thing for us. We are living in a moment of change which personally I think we may underestimate. We're looking forward to things getting back to normal. You hear it all the time. And uh, right now I'm, I'm sitting in an empty church looking at pews that are a little bit, there's a few of them that are on top of each other and facing the wrong way. And there's, honestly, David, there's a bit of rubbish in here that needs to be tidied up too. And we're all longing for this building to be full, and I am. But I'm not sure that the normal we get back to eventually will be all that similar to what we left behind. This is a moment of change. The method of church that we've relied upon for generations is currently switched off. When it switches on, I'm not sure that it will be the same again. And in fact, I hope it won't. I hope that we see in the future a church that is powered more and more and more by the gifts that the, the body of Christ holds together and less and less by the people who sit where I'm sitting and have a, a spotlight on their face. In this moment, in our world, the hidden, ordinary Christians are essential. They always have been. But right now, it's so plain, isn't it? We depend upon each other. We must be the body of Christ that nourishes itself, that finds God's truths and shares them with each other and ministers to one another and to the world around us. This is a time for each and every one of us to find the gift that God has given us, understand it, and begin to use it.
We've been reading our way through the Acts of the Apostles over probably a couple of months now or even more because we've had a few other little diversions along the way. The, the, the title of the book, Acts of the Apostles, I discovered, wasn't used for a couple of hundred years after the, uh, the book was compiled. It was used by Arrhenius late in the second century. The word, the Greek word act or deed appears only once in the whole text of the book of Acts. And so to call it the Acts of the Apostles is probably not all that accurate really. The book of Acts are the acts of the followers of Christ. It's the acts of the body of Christ. The, the apostles, of course, are foremost and you see the spotlight on them just as it is in the story we've read today. But every gift is essential. Every follower of Jesus has a gift to give. The mistake that we often make is to feel that we are insignificant or that we have little or nothing to contribute. I feel that so often personally and I, I couldn't begin to think how many times I've heard people say that. It might be one of the things we hear most often. Somebody saying, well, I could never do that. Somebody saying, I don't know what I've got to give. It's such a common feeling. I've got a little tiny thing to show you here. It's so small that I'm not, I'm not sure whether you'll see it at all. I'll hold it against my shirt. You can see the size of it. This is a coin and uh, I'm going to put it on my hand and you'll see a close-up picture of it. This little coin is a widow's mite. It's, a, it's wonderful because it, it is a 2,000-year-old coin that was in circulation at the time of Jesus. And I'm thinking, of course, of the story that Jesus um, tells well, the story that Luke tells about Jesus. Let me read it to you. It's in chapter, one of, chapter 21 of Luke. It says, Jesus looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Let me stop reading for a moment. If you look these up, it's called a lepta. And it, it says, if you look it up, you can find lots of information about them. It says that they're always poorly struck. And on this one, the, they all have a wheel on one side and an anchor on the other. And on this one, the anchor's in the middle. You can see that when I put it on my hand. But the wheel is way off to the side. It it's almost didn't make it onto the coin. It's a very poorly shaped, odd little thing. And that's what they're all like. It's tiny. How I haven't lost it in the couple of decades I've owned it, I don't know. Let me read again. Truly... I tell you, Jesus said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. So if Jesus had not pointed out the widow's gift, then surely she would have been hidden, unnoticed. Nobody would have remarked on her. It took Jesus to point out the hidden gift of this woman. And he says that that hidden gift is greater than all the other gifts. I sometimes wonder about this little coin and I think in 2,000 years, who held that? It's not, it's not impossible that this is one of the two that the woman put in the thing. It's not impossible, is it? There, there couldn't have been that many of these. Maybe there were, I don't know, a few thousand. 
This could be one of the two. But how many other thousands of people have held this? Many of them Christians perhaps, many of them not. Their lives are, are hidden. We, we don't know. We'll never know. My life won't be remembered as part of this coin story for too much longer. And yet, and yet, God is at work through all those centuries, through all those lives, building his kingdom, showing his purpose, birthing the life of Christ into the world through people like us. I find it wonderful to think about this little coin. Let me leave you with a couple of thoughts this, today. <laughs> what is your gift? What are your gifts? We have more than one, don't we? This is a hard time to do anything. No matter what you're trying to do at the moment, it's harder. If you're trying to make money, it's very hard. If you're trying to do grocery shopping, it's pretty challenging. If you're thinking about what summer will be life with a, like with a mask on, I think that's going to be very, very hard. But think for a minute how hard it was for the widow to separate herself from these two tiny coins. I think that that was dreadfully hard. It was hard for her to give her small hidden gift. And there's nothing wrong with life being a challenge. We should expect that life's a challenge. God has given us gifts to overcome those challenges. God has given us uh, his resurrection strength so that we should rise to the challenge. So let's follow Jesus into the unknown world ahead of us. Let's, let's find our gift and express it. Let's be unafraid to be the body of Christ Let's not rely on others to, to reshape our church or to change our future. Let's not wait for things to, to improve. Let's right now believe that this day is the day that the Lord has made, that this day is a day that God has called us not to be living in an unexpected, dreadful pandemic, but to be living the life of Christ in our community, to be living abundantly, victoriously, joyfully, encouragingly and living a good life that God provides us with. Be open to the Spirit and give whatever is in your hand to give. Amen.